This morning we're going to be thinking <clears throat> about the incarnation. But I need to remind you that the word incarnation does not appear in the Bible. Incarnate is a Latin word and it means in flesh. And so we're thinking about the enfleshment of God in the person of Jesus Christ. For me, the incarnation and the atonement are inseparable. The incarnation speaks to us about the birth of Jesus and the atonement speaks about the death of Jesus. The incarnation takes us to the cradle and the atonement takes us to the cross. We read in the book of Hebrews in chapter 1 in verse 14, since the children have been made of flesh and blood, we too shared in, in his humanity that he might destroy him that has the power of death, which is Satan. The incarnation then speaks simply of the virgin birth of the Savior. It was necessary to fulfill the redemptive program of God. And so the virgin birth, the incarnation, might very well be the most vital doctrine of the Christian faith. The incarnation is a pledge of the atonement. When Jesus was born, he came not to live, but to die. Not to die for himself, but to die for you and for me. In the next few minutes, I want to look at the incarnation from four viewpoints. I want you to notice, first of all, the promise of the incarnation, and it's found in the Old Testament. And then the person of the incarnation, which is, of course, Mary, and then the place of the incarnation, which is Bethlehem. And then finally, look at the purpose of the incarnation, and that is the cross and salvation for you and for me. Now, time will not permit me to talk about all of the promises of the incarnation. And so I have selected three. There are many of them in the Old Testament but I'm gonna give you just three promises of the incarnation. First of all, the promise of the incarnation was given to Satan while he was in the Garden of Eden. You remember that Satan made his way in the form of a serpent into the Garden of Eden. He deceived Adam and Eve. They disobeyed God. They partook of the forbidden fruit. And as a result of that, they sinned and plunged all of humanity into sin. The Bible tells us that God came walking into the garden. He understood what Adam and Eve had done. The serpent, Satan, was still there. And in Genesis chapter, 14, uh, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he said this. In verse 14, he looked at the serpent, and he said, you're going to be cursed above all the animals of the earth, and you'll crawl upon your belly. And then he looked at him again and said to him, and I'm going to put enmity, that is hostility, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You are going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. 
I want you to listen carefully to what Jesus, of what God said to Satan. Notice he said, uh, your seed, that is the seed of the serpent, and the woman's seed. Now you and I know right off that the woman does not have seed. And so it is a biological impossibility for there to be a virgin birth. But then we're not dealing with impossibilities when we deal with God. God is able to do anything and everything. And so God is able to do that which man can never conceive. And the woman's seed, which is going to be Jesus, is going to strike one day the head of the serpent, and he did on the cross of Calvary. So the first promise of the incarnation was given to the woman and to Satan in the garden. The second promise was given to King David, and you will find it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. David had reigned for some 40 years, and now his kingdom had come to an end, and God made a promise to him. He said this, when your days are fulfilled, I will set up thy seed, and I will establish thy kingdom forever. And then later on, God reaffirmed this same promise to Solomon, David's son. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, in verse 18, he said to Solomon, I will establish the throne of thy kingdom as I coveted with David thy father. There shall not fail thee a man to be ruler of Israel. And so God made this promise to David and then reaffirmed it to Solomon. And one time it almost broke. The royal line almost came to an end. Uh, Satan was able almost to break it. Uh, you'll find the story in 2 Chronicles chapters 21 and 22. King Jeroboam died. Azariah, his son, became the king. Uh, he was killed in less than a year. And his mother, Athaliah, suddenly seized the throne. And she immediately set out to kill all of her grandchildren. She killed every one of them except one little boy. Uh, her, her sister took this little boy, Joash. He was a baby. She hid him, and then when she had the opportunity, she took him to the, uh, to the temple, and Jehodai kept him for six years. When he was seven years old, Jehodai, along with the political leaders of Israel, proclaimed Joash as king, and he was anointed as king. Do you realize that in that particular moment, the line, the royal line of David was held by a thread, but God held the thread. And as long as God is holding the thread, you don't have to worry about it. God is going to see that every promise which he has made is going to be fulfilled. But Paul the Apostle affirmed this later on, writing to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, he said, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead. Notice the word seed of David. Seed of David raised from the dead. 
The third uh, time uh, promise for the incarnation was given by the prophet Isaiah. And you'll find it in Isaiah 7 and verse 14. Isaiah is talking to King Ahaz. And he said to him, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. And both Matthew and Luke verify the fact that it happened just exactly as Isaiah said. In fact, Matthew writes, This was done that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. But now let's move on to the person of the incarnation. I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about Mary, the mother. She was the instrument through which Jesus was going to come into this world. And God must have a woman. Now the woman must first of all be worthy. That is, she must be a virgin. And then she must be willing. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaiden of the Lord. I am willing. Now there are three things that I think about when I read about the virgin birth. Number one, the virgin birth is a mystery. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. In other words, God became visible in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John in chapter 1 of verse 18 said this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But you say, how in the world can that be? I said it is a mystery. And how can it be? How can the Ancient of Days become a babe in Bethlehem's manger? How could he who made all flesh become flesh? How could the Almighty become a child? How could he who sits on the circle of the earth become a human being such as you and me? I believe that Job understood it many years ago. In Job, he, uh, in Job chapter 42, he said to God, I know that you can do all things. The plan of the ages cannot be perverted or prevented. Job understood it. So first of all, the virgin birth is a mystery. Secondly, it is a miracle. Jesus was divinely conceived. That's the miracle. It is a stupendous miracle. Something beyond that which you and I can understand. Jesus is the only baby the world has ever known who did not have a human father. The birth of Jesus was no ordinary birth. The Bible simply tells us that he was born of a virgin. Immediately when we read that, human reason says no. It is not natural. And so down through the centuries, men and women have debated and doubted and denied the virgin birth. And one of the reasons why they have done so is because they do not believe in miracles. Matthew Arnold said this, I do not believe in the virgin birth because I do not believe in miracles. Well, I've got a little bit of news for him. 
God can do anything he wants to. And I find three places in the Bible where God did some unusual things. He He made Adam without the aid of a man or a woman. He made Eve without the aid of a mother. And he made Jesus without the aid of a human father. God can do anything that he wants to do. I want you to listen to Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, the one who appeared to Mary living in Nazareth to announce to her about the birth of Jesus. You'll find it in Luke's gospel, chapter 1, beginning at verse 26 and going down through verse 35. Gabriel said to Mary, Mary, you're going to give birth to a son and you're going to name him Jesus and he shall be called the Son of the Most High. And Mary looked at him and said, How can it be? I'm a virgin. I'm not married. I do not know a man. I'm engaged to be married, but I'm not married yet. And then listen to what Gabriel said. He said, The Holy Ghost shall come upon you, and the power of the Almighty shall overshadow you, and that which is born of you is of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit in some mysterious, miraculous manner went into the womb of Mary and planted a son and his name is called Jesus. Remember that Mary is the mother of the human Jesus, not the mother of God. She gave birth to Jesus. She didn't give birth to God. Now, the virgin birth, then, is a historical fact. You cannot explain it biologically, and yet it's one of the most important tenets of the Christian faith. Jesus did not begin when he was born, and he did not die when he died. He arose again. He died, but he rose again. It is an unmistakable account And it has been verified by Matthew and Luke that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. It is the only explanation for the sinless life of Jesus. If Jesus had a human father, then he was a sinner. So then the virgin birth is a mystery. We do not understand it. We accept it by faith. It is also a miracle. But thirdly, it's a must. If Jesus Christ was not born of a virgin, if he had a human father, he inherited a sinful nature, and he died on the cross for his sin, not mine and not yours. He could not be a substitute if he had a human father. He had to be sinless himself in order to pay for the sins that you and I have committed. And so it is a must. But look quickly at the place of the uh, virgin birth, of the incarnation. Now, the Bible tells us in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. But God has chosen a teenager living in Nazareth. That's about 70, 80 miles from Bethlehem. And God has to get Mary to Bethlehem in time to give birth to Jesus. So he moves the whole Roman Empire. And Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that all the people should register for a census. 
And since Mary and Joseph, who was to be married to Mary, were both of the line of David, they had to go back to the city of Bethlehem near Jerusalem to register. And the scripture tells us that it was while they were there that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. It was exactly as Micah chapter 2 said it would be. But then wouldn't you think that anyway? Because every promise of God is yea and amen. There's never been a promise of God made that he did not move. The place was fulfilled. And later on, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Galatia, in chapter 4 and verse 4, he said this, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman. The Apostle Paul also tells us about the, not only the place, but also the time of the birth of the Savior. It corresponds exactly with what Isaiah said in Isaiah 9 and in verse 6. When he said, unto you a child is born, that's the incarnation. Unto you a son is given, that's the atonement. That's the death of the Lord Jesus. I come then to the last thing about uh, the incarnation, and that is the purpose for it. Why must all of this happen in order for God's program of salvation to be fulfilled? And what was the purpose of it? I simply mentioned three things to you. Why did Jesus come into this world in the form of a baby? To reveal God the Father to you and me. God is a spirit. You and I cannot see God. The Bible said no man hath ever seen God. Uh, one day Thomas said to him, if you, Philip rather, said to Jesus, if you will show us the Father, it will satisfy us. And he said to, to Philip, have I been so long with you and have you not known me? He that have seen me have seen the Father. Jesus came first of all to reveal the invisible God to you and me. Secondly, he came to redeem us from our sin and to make it possible for us to have the peace of God and access to God and then one day the very presence of God in heaven. Thirdly, he came to recognize a reconciled man unto himself. When Adam and Eve sinned, there was a separation between God and Adam, and man needed to be reconciled to God, but man cannot reconcile himself. Man cannot pay the ransom price for the sin that he's committed. God had to do it, and that's what he did in the incarnation. You and I have a miraculous savior his birth was miraculous his resurrection was miraculous his life was miraculous and he's ready and willing to perform a miracle in your life if only you will give him your permission let's pray heavenly father i thank you for the incarnation I thank you for the birth of Jesus, and I also thank you for the death of Jesus and the resurrection of the Savior. Now, Lord, continue to speak to our hearts as we observe the Lord's Supper. In Christ's name I pray, amen.